I'm Brent Holland. Welcome to today's show. Stop what you're doing. You're going to want to hear this show. If you're driving a car, just ease off ever so slightly that gas pedal. These next two series of shows are going to seem like a Hollywood feature film with one distinctive difference. They're real. We are about to take you Washington, D.C., deep below the White House, directly into the president's nuclear-proof bunker on all days 9-11. Our guest today, Colonel Robert Darling, was there. Sitting beside him for 24 hours, Condoleezza Rice. Directly behind him, giving orders, Dick Cheney. On the phone, President George W. Bush. 9-11, folks, everybody remembers where they were that day. Colonel Robert Darling tells us when the big secure door slammed behind him, took him deep into that bunker, here's what happened. Was this indeed Dick Cheney's finest hour? It certainly was. Now, imagine big door opens, big door closes. I'm inside the bunker. There's members of the White House military office are all scrambling, answering phones. When I saw the vice president's military aide, he was an Air Force major, a good friend of mine. I said, Tom, I'm here to do airlift operations planning for the president. I'll stay out of your way. He said, Bob, the heck with logistics. I need you to answer the phones. They're ringing off the hook. I put a bag down. I walked over. Here's a console, a desk, a phone. It's ringing. I sat down. I picked it up. It was the first phone call that I received that day, right around 9.52 that morning. And I said, Major Darling, next thing you know, you heard this is the White House Situation Room upstairs in the White House. We have another hijacked plane 15 miles south of Pittsburgh, inbound Washington, D.C. Stick around, folks. This is going to be an exciting, explosive show. It is the true story of Lieutenant Colonel Robert Darling, deep below the White House in the President's secure bunker, 24 hours, 9-11, right now on Brent Holland. Folks, if you're joining us, we have a profound guest with us this afternoon. I need to go back almost 10 years, September 11th, and right away, you're keying in, 2001, 9-11, folks. I think, like the Kennedy assassination for this generation, everybody remembers where they were that day. Indeed, our guest today certainly remembers where he was because he was right inside the president's bunker. That's right, folks. Our guest today, Colonel Bob Darling was right there beside Vice President Dick Cheney and President George Bush, making all the decisions and implementing them to keep the country 
safe. Bob, I want to welcome you to the show, but I also want to thank you for your service that day because I know without folks like you at the helm, things would have been a lot worse as bad as they were. Thank you for joining us, my friend. Well, it's great to be with you, Brent. And uh, like I said, you know, it was my pleasure. Let's start off just a normal day, I guess, for you when you started your day. Can you take us... I'll take your listeners up to how I got to the White House and how that day began, if I may. Sure, I am a uh, U.S. Marine, retired as of 2007, but I was an attack helicopter pilot. I flew the AH-1W Super Cobra, and I joined the Marine Corps in 1987. I flew it in Desert Shield and then Desert Storm and again in Somalia. I was deployed with the 2-4 Marine Expeditionary Unit. I came back home. They made me a Cobra flight instructor. Uh, eventually, I was a recruiter for the Marine Corps. And then in 1998, I put a package in. And I was selected to fly then-President Clinton around with Marine Helicopter Squadron 1. This is the squadron that you see on TV with the, the, the shiny green and, and white top helicopters that you see land and take off from the White House South Lawn. It was our job to fly the president worldwide. And wherever he goes, the United States president gets a logistics package that includes his helicopters, secure phones, and obviously the Secret Service hard cars. And that goes in advance of Air Force One in every location around the world. So when the president steps off Air Force One, we're fully rehearsed, in place, ready to go so he can execute his political agenda. And when he departs, we pick it all up and either bring it home or immediately move that logistics package to a different location somewhere else in advance of him around the world. Folks, we're speaking with Colonel Bob Darling this afternoon. He's going to take us right inside the White House bunker on 9-11. Easy way to get his book. And by the way, his book is called 24 Hours Inside the President's Bunker, 9-11 Inside the White House. Easy way to get it, as always, www.brenthollandshow.com. Just click on the book cover. As always, that'll take you right to a place online where you can pick it up. Do order the book, not only for its historical value, but for its human drama as well. I mean, this is real-life history we're speaking with today, folks. I remember where I was, of course, on 9-11. I was in Montreal at the time, and they were saying when the towers were first attacked that they were going to be sending a lot of the survivors north to Montreal because of its close proximity. They were asking for blood, so we virtually shut the studio down and went to give blood that day while we were giving blood. The tragedy of all tragedies happened, and that was the towers fell. And I'll let Lieutenant Colonel Bob Darling pick it up right there. And as I said, now I'm up uh, 1998. I'm flying President Clinton around. Our squadron commanding officer approached me in October of 2000 and said, I need a senior aviator to work in the White House military office that's actually working in the Eisenhower Executive Office building adjacent to the White House West Wing. And your job would be to do the logistics that I just described to you uh, earlier. So begrudgingly, I had to leave flying, and I went up there to be a part of the White House Military Office Airlift Operations Department. And inside this office, it's run by a full colonel. We had an Air Force colonel who was our boss at the time. And there's somebody from every branch of service. There's, there's a Marine, myself, there's a, a Navy commander, uh, another Air Force lieutenant colonel. It's represented by the Army. All branches of the U.S. military are represented there. And what we do is we rotate the assignments of logistics. So one week you're responsible for the movement of the President of the United States. You do all the planning with his staff. You move the you work with the Department of Defense to get all the assets in place. And when Air Force One departs, you clean it all up and move it to the next location. 
the week of September 11, 2001, I was the airlift operations officer responsible for then-President Bush's trip to Sarasota, Florida. I got everybody down there about four days prior to uh, the 11th. They rehearsed. They're all in place. President Bush departed the White House on September 10th. He was going down to discuss his education reform at the Emma E. Booker Elementary School in the morning of the 11th, and then he was supposed to return to Washington, D.C. all went off without a hitch. I woke up in the morning on September 11th. I was up in the White House about 8 o'clock. Uh, we, we huddled up, and we were going to talk about the day's events, what, you know, bringing back the gear and what future gear or future trips were up and coming for the president. When someone walked in our office and said, you need to turn on national news, either Fox or CNN, one of the, uh, the network news channels, a uh, small plane apparently has just struck the North Tower of the World Trade Center. We turned on CNN, I believe it was at the time, and we're all watching, and then we started speculating in the office there. Gee, that's a pretty big hole for such a, set, a small aircraft as a Cessna on such a clear blue day without a cloud in the sky. I wonder if he had a heart attack. How could the pilot have hit such a prominent landmark? We were all just you know, bantering back and forth. When at around 9.03, we all saw United Airlines Flight 175 just careen into the South Tower at what looked like full power. And we knew in the White House military office, airlift ops department, that we had a full-blown terrorist attack unfolding right before our eyes in lower Manhattan, New York City. The, day, the day's events then changed. Instead of doing uh, pre-planning for presidential trips, our Air Force boss came in the room, said, get off the phone, stop what you're doing, let's get ready for high-level White House designated missions. If the Federal Emergency Management Agency is contacted and they want to move either doctors, nurses, first responders, medical supplies, relief supplies of any sort to New York area, we're going to make it a White House priority mission. That means they get all the Air Force assets immediately, and we're going to start moving relief supplies to New York. And as we're doing that, and as we're working through that, 9.30 in the morning now, an airliner overflies the White House, literally so low that it drowned us out in our conversations. Oh, my God. Uh, one of the guys ran to the window and said, I just saw an airliner in a hard left-hand turn heading west. Now, let me describe the White House. As you know, it's, it's prohibited airspace. Mm -hmm. uh, any VFR section has got a big P-56 on it for prohibited airspace 56. No one overflies the White House, let alone this huge airliner that drowned us out. A few minutes later, right around 938, breaking news, there's been a, an explosion and fire reported over at the Pentagon. We really knew, uh, we, we started to assume that that airliner that just overflew the White House was, in fact, the same air, airliner that just struck the Pentagon. Now, we, we didn't just have a terrorist attack unfolding in New York, but we had a terrorist attack happening right here in Washington, D.C. All the phones were ringing. Now we're, we're, we're trying to scramble. Uh, what's going on? Everybody wants to know what's happening at the Pentagon. When at 9.45, all the intercom systems blared to life in the White House and the executive office building, evacuate the White House, evacuate the White House, secure your spaces, and everybody, uh, you know, go to the rallying points, take a muster, but the White House and, and the Eisenhower building are to be officially evacuated. And that hasn't happened since, you know, the War of 1812 against the British, uh, when Dolly Madison was running out the back door with, with you know, Prince of George Washington. 
And here we are. We did a full-blown evacuation in the White House in the Eisenhower building. I grabbed my boss. He told us, uh, that's it. We're, we're done for the day. Secure your spaces. And I grabbed Colonel Irwin, and I said, boss, I can't leave. The president is in Sarasota. Washington, D.C. is now under attack. He's not going to be able to come back to Washington. Wherever he goes, he's going to need his logistics package. He's going to need his hard cars, his helicopters, his secure phones. He's going to need, uh, you know, any type of whatever person or equipment he wants uh, brought to him. I need to stay. He said, great, grab the planning kit, go on down inside the White House bunker. We know it as the President's Emergency Operations Center. It's beneath the White House. His exact location, you know, we don't talk about the capabilities of the room. We don't talk about, but it's a hardened facility where we can bring the commander-in-chief and his family in times of catastrophic events such as, as 9-11. And out the door... I went. I headed out of the Eisenhower building on my way over towards the West Wing to get inside the White House. Folks, www.brenthollandshow.com. Get this book. I'm at the edge of my seat. The book is called 24 Hours Inside the President's Bunker. And our guest today and its author, Lieutenant Colonel Robert Darling, Bob Darling. Folks, he was right there during 9-11 inside the president's secure bunker. And he's going to tell us a few of the things and break down some of the crazy myths that have been floating around since 9-11, like the Americans were involved in their own catastrophe. And that's what I want to get to now, Bob. Can you take us into the bunker? And was this indeed Dick Cheney's finest hour? It certainly was. Now, I imagine big door opens, big door closes. I'm inside the bunker. The members of the White House military office are all scrambling, answering phones. When I saw the vice president's military aide, he was an Air Force major, a good friend of mine. I said, Tom, I'm here to do airlift operations planning for the president. I'll stay out of your way. He said, Bob, the heck with logistics. I need you to answer the phones. They're ringing off the hook. I put a bag down. I walked over. Here's a console, a desk, a phone. It's ringing. I sat down. I picked it up. It was the first phone call that I received that day, right around 9.52 that morning. I said, Major Darling, next thing you know, you heard this is the White House Situation Room upstairs in the White House. We have another hijacked plane 15 miles south of Pittsburgh, inbound Washington, D.C. And, well, you're going to have to hold on. I turned to pass that information up the chain of command to the military aide, and then eventually he would take it up to the vice president. When, lo and behold, Vice President Cheney was a foot away from me going, Major, what do you got? Now, everyone is coming into the room now, Brent, if you can imagine. I saw his wife, Lynn, Dr. Rice, who was a national security advisor at the time, her deputy, Stephen Hadley. All the other staffers now are, are piling into the bunker complex, coming over to my console, and I'm telling the vice president that we have a hijacked plane 16 miles south of Pittsburgh. He turns, and now the speaker boxes on the wall are, are chirping to life, and the first person he reaches out to is, Rick from the FAA, the Herndon Command Center that we have in, in Herndon, Virginia, for the FAA. Rick, can you confirm somewhere south of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, we have another hijacked plane inbound? He said, Vice President, stand by. We're checking. We're checking. They came back and said, that aircraft is not talking on the radio. It's not squawking. It's proper transponder code. It's way off course. Mr. Vice President, that's a hijacked plane. He then turned and said, Don, are you up? He was looking for his friend, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. He was not on the net. He was actually outside in the parking lot over at the Pentagon assisting with the triage and the wounded as the first responders obviously were, uh, were trying to put out the fire over at the Pentagon. When they came back and said, Mr. Vice President, this is the National Military Command Center over in the Pentagon. How can we help you, sir? 
All eyes were on the vice president. I fully expected him to ask more questions. Instead, his first response was, I want two F-15s. I want them at an Otis Air National Guard base. Let me know when they're airborne. Stand by to shoot this aircraft down. I'm still holding on to the receiver, and we just ordered our fighters airborne to intercept United Flight 93. Oh, my God. Um, the tension in the room. You're just speaking about what was going on, and I can feel the pressure, the tension, the split-second decisions that have to be made about life and death. Folks, the book is called 24 Hours Inside the President's Bunker. That's right. He's taking us right into the President's Bunker on 9-11. And that person is Lieutenant Colonel Robert Darling. He's our guest today. www.brenthollandshow.com As always, click on that book cover. Order this book. Order this book because it is in a historical document as well as is it going to bust down a lot of those crazy myths. This is real life drama, folks. This is what took place. Everybody remembers where they were on 9-11. I just described where I was giving blood. This is what was going on behind the scenes to keep everybody safe. Now, you know, here in Canada, the planes had been grounded by that point. We were starting to take people into our homes. That was what was happening in Canada. This is what was happening at the Action Center, right? there below the White House. going to turn it back over to Mr. Darling because I'm on the edge of my seat, Bob. This is incredible. Well, Brent, it gets even busier from here. We heard the F-15s reported supersonic over Long Island, New York. They were five minutes out from United Flight 93. They wanted to be weapons confirmed to engage. You are weapons free to engage. As soon as they have a lock on it, they are cleared hot. They can shoot it down. This is about 10.02 that morning. We heard aircraft down, aircraft down, 68 miles south of Pittsburgh, no survivors. The air was sucked clean out of the bunker. All of us, there was about 20 of us in there that day. All eyes were on the vice president. We just thought by on orders of the vice president to the military that our F-15s, in fact, had shot Flight 93 out of the sky. It was You could have heard a pin drop. The vice president paused. He looked up. He looked down and he spun right around and he walked right over to me and said, for the congressional inquiry, state your full name. Mr. Vice President, from Robert Joseph Darling, my name is Robert Joseph Darling. He said, from, from Darling, Robert Joseph Darling, to, to myself, the Vice President, to the National Military Command Center, we just shot that plane down. I really need to talk to the President of the United States. And then he walked out of the room to the executive side and now everybody was scrambling to try to reach the President who was now on Air Force One just getting airborne out of Sarasota, Florida, when the two then uh, were speaking on the phone. They, the minute they got the president on the phone, he instituted two classified programs. One was continuity of presidency, and the other was continuity of government. Essentially, the details we don't talk about, but essentially the presidency is the president, the vice president, and the White House or, or the congressional speaker of the House uh, can no longer be in the same geographical lo uh, location. They need to spread out so our executive branch survives. The succession of the presidency will survive. Then the continuity of government is our three branches of government, legislative, judicial, and executive branch. The principles of those agencies need to go to their hardened facilities. So no matter what happens in America, our government won't de be decapitated and our presidency will always survive. President Bush instituted those two programs 
And then they had what they call an air threat conference. They had the Bob. Could I just interrupt you for a second? Did you say that those two F-15s took out that flight? They did for a few minutes. And oh, I see. I, okay. I, I didn't clarify that. I said they did. A few minutes later, we heard. I totally missed this. The F-15s never fired. The F-15s never fired. That aircraft was actually down by the passengers on board Flight 93. It was Todd Beamer and the other passengers right. that fought against those terrorists and in so doing lost their lives in the struggle. But that was the first battle against radical Islam, and those are the heroes of the very first battle. And I'm, I'm sorry, through my own excitement, I jumped over that piece of information. No, I just but wanted to clarify it, because a lot of people say that they actually shot them down. And when you said that, I thought, oh, oh, my God. So, okay, thank no, you for we, that. We did not. Now, it's very important that your listeners know that we did not shoot Flight 93 down. The order was given. It would not have made it to Washington, D.C., that's for certain. But uh, we did not engage that aircraft. It was, in fact, the passengers on board. Okay. Let's go back into the secure bunker. Folks, our guest today, of course, Lieutenant Colonel Bob Darling. He's written a book called 24 Hours Inside the President's Bunker. 9-11, that's what we're talking about. All those split-second decision-making aspects of what was taking place that day. This was unprecedented. By the way, folks, there was no template to engage in and say, okay, we follow from A to B to C to D. They were going from A to F to G and then back to A again and all over the place. Bob was just telling us how they had to keep the president and the vice president separate for continuity of government. I'm going to go back to Robert Darling right now, who's the author of the book, 24 Hours Inside the President's Bunker. And he's our guest today. And I am just mesmerized. The other thing that was really unprecedented was they finally, at around 10.15, now Secretary Rumsfeld's on the phone. They're on the speaker boxes. They're all talking to the President of the United States. We just got past the Flight 93 incident where, in fact, we, we thought we shot it down, and, in fact, we didn't shoot it down. Um, and now the President is on the phone for the first time. And Secretary Rumsfeld makes a recommendation to the President that we move, we move our strategic nuclear forces from DEFCON 4, Defense Condition 4, down to DEFCON 3, which is actually a higher state of readiness. And that is to get our military members all the way around the world back to work. Whenever we raise our threat level or, or increase our readiness, everybody's got a playbook. The Air Force does. They load bombers. Submarines die. The Navy gets out of port. The Marines mount out. Everything happens when you change a condition, a readiness condition like that. Secretary Rumsfeld recommended it to the president. He accepted that's a great idea. Move our strategic nuclear forces to DEFCON 3 and have them stand by for DEFCON 2. Now, Dr. Rice, the National Security Advisor, was sitting to my right. She grabbed my arm and said, Major, we haven't been to DEFCON 2 since the Cuban Missile Crisis back in 1962. That's right. Here we are, about ready to go. Worldwide, DEFCON 3, stand by DEFCON 2. And the Vice President interrupted her and said, Condi, make it happen. Just like you can imagine, Brent, she reached over, she grabbed the red phone, and she calls over to the Pentagon National Military Command Center. By executive order, the President of the United States move our strategic nuclear forces to DEFCON 3, have them stand by DEFCON 2. The Pentagon calls out to Cheyenne Mountain, Colorado, NORAD, uh, North American uh, Aerospace Command, and repeats the order, and then NORAD calls out to all the four-star combatant commands. So CENTCOM... PACOM, Atlantic Command, uh, Pacific Command, 
European command, all of our four-star combatant commanders around the world are now saying they're DEFCON 3, standing by DEFCON 2. Bob, can I interrupt you again? You were saying it's a pivotal moment. Does NATO go on alert as well when that happens? I think NATO does go, and I'm I'm not certain, but we are embedded with NATO throughout Europe. So whenever the European command goes to higher state of readiness, I think our NATO partners are automatically a part of that. I just want to let folks know Canada was already on alert as well. We were escorting planes with our own F-15s at that time. I'm sorry, Bob. No, and and good. Slow me down and stop me for for those things. It's important. And, you know, why was that moment in, in our history so important? That was the time that the United States finally went from a defensive posture to an offensive posture. Right around 10:15 that day, we were no longer taking body blows. We are now leaning forward. We are getting our military in action. We are clearing the skies. The president was fully up on Air Force One and acting as commander-in-chief. He and the vice president then, along with the secretary of defense, we're, we're moving our nation forward to defend America. This is an incredible story, folks. It is a true story, an absolutely true story. And we are getting an insider's view of what took place, all those decisions inside the White House on 9-11. doesn't get any more real than this. Our guest today, very brave man, and thank goodness there was men of this fortitude there that day. Lieutenant Colonel Robert Darling is our guest, and he's the author of a book called 24 Hours Inside the President's Bunker, you're going to want to get this book, without question. Get a whole pile of them. Christmas is coming up. It's well worth it. It's going to be an incredible story, an incredible read. It is a true story. www.brenthollandshow.com. Click on the book cover. We'll take you right to a place where you can order it from the comfort of your own home. Get this book. Get this book. Bob, would you like to continue? Sure, Brent, I'd be happy to. For the remainder of the day now, we have the president on the phone. As a matter of fact, let me, let me take you down to about 1028 that morning. We just got word at, at 959, I believe it was, that the, in fact, the South Tower had just collapsed. They had the president on the phone. They told the president, uh, this is the vice president talking to the president, that it's our best guess that we had 20,000 dead Americans at that point. Yeah. We had not spoken to Giuliani. There was no report for FEMA. There was nothing coming out of New York that was pure speculation of someone yelling out, Mr. Vice President, on any given day, 50,000 people were in those towers or in and around lower Manhattan. And with the tower on the ground, 110 stories now laying on the ground, we our best guess is we have 20,000 dead Americans. At 1028, when the North Tower collapsed, they again got the President on the phone and told them that it was our best guess that we had at least 40,000 dead Americans in New York. Coming up right away on the Brent Holland Show, part two of this amazing story. Deep below the White House in the President's Bunker, Colonel Robert Darling continues this story. Those decisions were coming fast and furious, the information flooding in constantly, constantly. As you know, we were in constant threat of another attack. There were rumors abound that there was actually a nuclear weapon in New York. If you're doing real-world history... We have all the people that went through those tumultuous times in their own words telling those stories. Just like today, where are you going to find somebody who was in the bunker that day during 9-11? As always, www.brenthollandshow.com. You get the facts, you get them straight, you get them true. www.brenthollandshow.com. This is stuff you won't get on mainstream radio. 
9-11 deep below the White House, directly inside the president's secure nuclear bunker. Everything that went on that day, right inside that bunker. This show will continue next on Brent Holland. See you soon.